ticket all the way back. Yeah, woo. Put a ticket all the way back. Put a ticket all the way back. Put a ticket all the way back. We're starting. Take it all the way back. Take it all the way back. Yeah, woo. Share your song line. That's right. Yeah, Mamalia. Welcome to Sober Life, a podcast that delves into people's lived journeys from merely surviving through to thriving. We yarn with people from all walks of life who have been rock bottom and have found the strength, courage and determination to pick themselves up and to keep on going. We'll hear their stories, share their laughs and shed a few tears while learning a truckload about living along the way. The stories are raw and real. Sober Life is proudly brought to you by Sober Beverages, Australia's first non-alcoholic craft beer company and is hosted by me, Dr. Clinton Schultz, the Miller A. Man and psychologist. If anything in these yarns triggers you and you need immediate help, please ensure to yarn up. You can contact Lifeline, Beyond Blue, or if you're a young person, Headspace or Kids Helpline. Welcome back to Sober Life, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. For those that haven't listened before, thank you for coming along. Those that are returning, thank you very much for coming back and listening to us again. Today, we're fortunate enough to speak to a very good friend of mine, Jeremy Donovan, a world-renowned singer, performer, artist, and and a man of many other tricks as well. But I'm not going to speak too much about him because I know he likes to talk a lot about himself. So I'm actually going to hand it over to Jeremy to introduce himself and, uh, and start kicking off this yarn. Morning, Jeremy. Thank you, brother, uh, and to all the listeners. Thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to um, to be on the podcast this morning with um, with my good brother and you know good friend. I am a, a really proud Gugu Yalanji man, or and Western Yalanji man. We're Nyugu people from the western part of 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 the Yalanji region, and but now I'm living up here in the East Kimberley, up on 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 Miron Country, and. It's uh, it's an honour to be, I guess you know, sharing this space with you, Clinton, on on the podcast, on the Sober Life podcast. So thanks for having me. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. And as you know, this pod is all about people sharing their journeys through some of the struggles that they've had throughout their life, and and really yarning up about the things that have helped them along those journeys to get them to the, I guess, to the more happy places that they find themselves today. And um, you know, I'm I'm well aware of much of your story, and we've had many yarns over both our backgrounds over over the years. But would you mind sharing with uh, sure. with our listeners some of your your own story? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, life life well. And I think for everyone, life is a journey, you know, and it's um, it's one that, you know, sometimes poses, you know, incredible challenges and difficulties. And I guess like your, your, like your own journey, it's about, you know, sort of rising rising above some of those obstacles and, and sort of seeing where we can make the, you know, the biggest impact. And I think for me, you know, so much of my, you know, my own struggles is, and overcoming the struggles is about how I can you know, learn from, learn from the life that I've, you know, sort of lived and, and be able to impart some of that, you know, story, you know, back to others that are having, you know, similar struggles. And so as a young person growing up, I was completely disconnected from identity that, you know, culture wasn't, you know, sort of, you know, it, it wasn't a privilege that I was, you know, sort of was given as a, as a young person growing up and I was completely removed from family. I was completely you know, sort of disconnected from culture, uh, you know, and sort of went through the the challenges of, you know, sort of of having no identity as a result of, you know, sort of the absolute displacement that I found myself in as, as a young person growing up. And, you know, through through those challenges, I think of, of missing out. I draw so much strength today from my cultural identity that, you know, without that identity as a young person, I found myself, you know, in some really challenging places. You know, as a young person growing up, school was incredibly challenging as a result of of the, the system that, you know, that I was that I was raised in. And then, you know, sort of heading into my early teenage life, I find myself, you know, making some, you know, pretty tough life choices around you know, sort of drugs and alcohol and then finding myself, you know, sort of in front of the court system at 13 years old and then finding myself, 
you know, in the systems of, you know, sort of incarceration and and then the cycle that that presents and the cycle that we know, you know, so many young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people find themselves entrapped in, in this, you know, sort of rotating door whereby, you know, prison becomes, you know, sort of a, it's easier to find our pathway to prison than it is to find a pathway to, you know, graduating from school. And so, you know, that was certainly the life that, you know, that I was living it as a teenager and it wasn't until when I was 18 when I when I moved and left Sydney and, and moved back to, you know, Far North Queensland with my with my grandparents and started to really I guess I had to rebuild myself at, at that point with a with a really positive cultural identity that I defined my identity as a teenager at thirteen years old. I distinctly remember standing in in Glebe Children's Court and I was going to the bathroom before, you know, before my hearing and I shut the bathroom door and there was an Aboriginal flag painted on the back of the door in the court and and I made almost a conscious decision that this was where I was going to find my identity and, you know, I, I really built quite a fraudulent identity based on incarceration versus, you know, sort of the positivity that I was able to, you know, sort of find once I found my way back to, you know, far north Queensland and, and to being with, with my grandparents. To me, life you know, sort of really started to, you know, turn itself around at 18 years old when I left Sydney and, and went back up to, you know, far North Queensland and, you know, really, you know, cemented an understanding of or begin to cement or build the foundations of what what identity meant to me. And I, I certainly know that I wouldn't have been able to do that without the, the I guess, the strengths of the, of the old people that I had around me, that they were so critical to to really allowing me to to begin a healing process of, you know, sort of healing through the grief and the trauma that, you know, that I'd been part of, uh, you know, that I'd experienced as a, as a young child and, and then also as, you know, in my early teens that I didn't realise the impacts I had. Well, I don't think anyone, you know, sort of understands the impacts of trauma, you know, sort of in your adolescence. And it's not until you start to mature a little bit that we start realizing the impacts of the of you know the situation and the circumstances that we've been raised in really have you know sort of shaped sort of your outlook on life and at 18 years old when I first moved back up to North Queensland I was a I was a really broken young man that I was you know I'd been subjected you know I'd subjected myself to incredible amounts of abuse and addiction and it really you know, I, I often talk about my life really didn't wasn't able to begin in a, in a really healthy manner until I found my way back to country. And you know, there's there's a couple of major you know sort of factors that, that helped the process or helped the pathway to to beginning that healing journey. And you know, so one just, was you know my grandfather was an incredibly instrumental person, and even in his passing, you know, he like he he continues to be mm. an incredibly you know instrumental person and figure and. I guess he imparted so much knowledge and wisdom, you know, with me that it, he really was, you know, critical to any of my process of healing. And then, you know, country, you know, just finding my way home to country and understanding, you know, our relationship to our bubble, to our, our land is, you know, was, was also incredibly instrumental around allowing me the space to be nurtured where I could begin that pathway to healing and, and then obviously with that, you know, with country and, and with, you know, sort of the right old people around me, I was, you know, able to start learning culture. And, uh, you know, I've been incredibly privileged in terms of what the old people, you know, not just of my own country, but of all the countries that, you know, I was able to visit in those early days with, you know, with my grandfather when we were, yeah. you know, sort of we traveled right the way across, you know, sort of, you know, the top part of Northern Queensland and, across the Gulf and up into Northeast Arnhem Land, like the old people that, you know, sort of that really, you know, that had significant impact on, on my life and, and giving me a really stable uh, platform for, you know, for devi- defining, redefining my cultural identity, which was, you know, sort of my indigeneity was, was based around, based around, you know, sort of the incarceration and the, you know, and that, sure. that piece. And, and so it's to, interesting, read, like to be you- able to read, you mentioned a couple of things that, you know, I, I come up with a lot of the young fellas that both you and I have worked with across across time and, and also family members and, and good friends that we've 
um, had yarns with, and, and that's you know issues of the system and issues of identity that really drive drive us away away from having the opportunity to experience wellness. Like, what do you think that it was that mostly impacted on you? Do you think it was the systemic issues that that drove you from identity, or do you think it was the loss of identity that led you to becoming part of the system? Yeah, I think it was loss of identity. Yeah, you know because because you know sort of the life that I was growing up in was there was no identity, and so mm. as a, as a young person that you know sort of was disconnected from family, you find yourself trying to define an identity, and and mm. you know we define our identities by the people that you know we associate and we 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 hang yeah, around and. Towards, yeah, yeah. If, you know, and unfortunately, like anything that, you know, when you have a really broken, you know, perspective of the world and a broken outlook on the world, you, you find yourself gravitated, you know, gravitating to, to other people who come from similar walks of life. Mm-hmm. And so, and in that, you know, you find yourself, I guess, you know, circled by, by other people that are making the same, mm-hmm. you know, sort of toxic life choices and, and you find yourself part of the system that, I mean, yeah. It, there's no, there's no doubt that once you're, once you're entrapped in that system, that you know, sort of the racial policies of, of, of our country that we know still exists when it comes to incarceration of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people, For sure, you know, further ingrain that powerlessness and and the pain, you know, it perpetuates pain, yep. and you know, sort of even in those, you know, in the environment of incarceration there's there's no there's no consideration for human repair and there's no there's no opportunity to learn a positive identity when you're in as part of that system either no absolutely not and there's also no there's no capacity to dream when there's walls all around you and in that you know in those places people are not there inspiring you to dream to try and check you know make you know to have a different outlook is that you almost feel like that your life has been scripted, that this is what life is going to be like. And mm. I know that I speak, you know, from a place of incredible privilege because I'm one of the lucky people who made it out of that system. And yeah. I think back, you know, the people that, you know, I was, you know, knocking about with as a, you know, sort of in 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, you know, unfortunately not a lot of those brothers are around today. Yeah. You know, they've either, you know, sort of been, you know, they're entrapped in the system still or, Unfortunately, the, the, they've passed away as a result of you know sort of the complexities of trauma that come from that life. And so now I've got and know, I've got the- I've got my opinions on where we've shif- shifted over the years. But I'd be really interested to hear from you as somebody who's who's been through the system, but also now still works with people who are stuck in that cycle. Do you think we've shifted very far in the twenty years since we've grown up? Listen, I wish to say, I wish to say that we were we we're advanced, you know. But you know, earlier on in the year, I think it was back in 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 June or July. You know, I was at a child protection conference, and mm. you know, it it hasn't changed. You know, they're still talking about you know sort of where things are going wrong. We can articulate a pathway of exactly you know what what didn't work, and yet we're still repeating it and still continuing to try and you know. Pr- to do things the same way that they were doing them 30, 40 years ago. Definitely and in terms it. of the prison system, we're, we're not advancing. We're not, we haven't, you know, you only have to look at the difference between, you know, sort of how, you know, places like Scandinavia, you know, with their prison system where I think they have a, you know, they have a 7% recidivism rate where we have a 76% recidivism mm-hmm. rate. It's, you know, the, the truth around that is that, is that over in over in those prison systems over in, in Scandinavia they, they they invest into human rehabilitation and human repair and healing and and healing and it seems like our prison system seems to keep you know investing into despair yeah, you we're, know we're and stuck in the in this 200 year old punitive system that is just about punishment rather than actual rehabilitation Exactly. Once you go to jail, that should be the punishment. But once you're in jail, it should be based around rehabilitation mm. of, you know, of the individual. And, and it just, it doesn't, you know, our, our systems don't, our system and even our society to some extent doesn't, doesn't give us the ability to repair once we have made those, you know, mistakes. And, you know, even to the point, you know, where our criminal records and our criminal history, it still places you in a position where, 
you are forever judged based on, you know, life choices that you've, you've made, you know, when you're applying for jobs, you know, mm. you have to declare upfront that, you know, do you have a criminal record? Do you have all these things? And I understand it, you know, as, as a, you know, as an element of safety to some, some pathways of work, but what it does is that it locks a lot of good people out of delivering services to, to people that are making same, the similar life choices. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's like I've been working with this young fella, you know, he's 20, 25 this year, and I've been working with him since he was 17, and he went straight, literally went straight from juvie into maximum security and has pretty much spent his entire adulthood in maximum security. He got out for a couple of months, was given no support at all from the system basically as a mechanism just to ensure that he fucked up and they could lock him back up. Now, he's he's yeah. he's not going to be one of the lucky ones. I, I really fear that, you know, I'll never get to see this young man outside of those walls and to get to see him prosper, you know, and, and he's very much had a had a pathway like you. He came through child safety, experienced a whole bunch of abuse, went straight into juvie, then went straight into the big house. But as you said, you're one of the lucky ones. That's just not the that's not the ordinary, is it? No, it's it's not the ordinary. It's not the norm, you know. And I guess this way, I I take you know so much pride, and even you know, like it makes me emotional because yeah. I I care so much about trying to help the uh, I I care so much about trying to help other people, you know, find a pathway out of the place based on the pathway that helped me yeah. and because, you know, and, and the emotions that come up now are based around the fact that there were good, there were a lot of good young kids with me around that we just didn't have anything. Yeah, there was sure. no, there was no safety. There was no, there was no ability to build, you know, a platform for positivity in terms of, you know, the things that we thrived on were not the things that were going to give us life skills, you know, to, to live a prosperous life. And so we were, there were no bad, we weren't bad kids. We just, lost. we just had, we were lost in a, in a society and trying to, you know, unfortunately tried to define an identity for ourselves that was based on, you know, further, you know, perpetuating, you know, sort of pain and, you know, but you don't, you don't, you can't understand that at that age that you don't understand, you know, sort of that every time you, you walk through a traumatic experience and, you know, the things that we saw, you know, like I was, I witnessed someone being murdered at, you know, 14 years old, that those, those things don't, they don't leave you, you know, and it's, and, you know, still today at, you know, 40, at 41 years old, you know, it, it still has its effects. And, and even, and even in, you know, sort of the life that I live today and, and you very much well experienced this with me, is that you saw me, you know, in a point where I was able to, you know, rise to incredible success through, you know, through my music, through my art, through my performance, you know, through the public speaking, you know, to achieve, you know, incredible heights in terms of, you know, sort of being recognized as one of the most influential public speakers in the in the country, you know, to, you know, you know, producing artworks for Nest Cafe and and for David Jones and for Office Works. Um, to, you know, when I was the CEO of Generation One, is that you saw me, you know, sort we'll of- We'll get to that part of your journey soon, brother. Don't worry about that. I mean, so, I mean, you saw me in those places, but then you saw the fall that yeah. came from, which, you know, which came from, you know, the depression. It came from finding myself in an environment where I, I felt underappreciated and, yeah. and I didn't feel like it. there was anyone, you know, sort of really loving me like really giving me love and, Mm. and I found myself, you know, falling back down that cycle of, you know, sort of into a, into a state of abuse again. And it's something that it's, you know, it's, and it came up in one of the other yarns that I've had on this podcast, you know, when, when you've experienced rejection, you become more sensitive to rejection because at the end of the day, we just want acceptance and love. Yeah. And, when you've experienced so much fucking rejection throughout your life, yeah, you're going to become sensitive. Just the same as if you've experienced a fuckload of discrimination throughout your life. Yes, you're going to become yeah. sensitive to that because it's an actually a protective mechanism. Sensitivity is there to help protect us from overexposure to these things that we know damage our well-being. And 
yeah. for some of us, those episodes just keep coming and coming and there's not enough periods of, of healing time in between the exposures. Has that been your experience? Yeah, it, it, it certainly has been my experience, but it also has been, you know, one of the, one of the other things is because I, you know, sort of built this, you know, sort of platform of, of success around the music and the art, you know, the healing work, you know, the public speaking, you know, people knew my story, right? And so that, oh, well, you know, look, at, he's come so far, he's so strong, he's so resilient, you know, but people didn't realise that I was going to be subjected to. And they expect you, know, you to be on that level all the time then, eh? All the time. And they don't realise that that we crash and burn as well, is that like every time I stood on stage and told my, my dog's yelling at me, um, every time I stood on stage that, you know, and told my story that you give a part of yourself away that, that hurts. And, um, you know, there were times where I'd jump in my car after delivering a keynote and, you know, I'd, I wouldn't be able to drive the car for an hour and, you know, because the emotions that, you know, because you, you walk that path of your own vulnerability and the, the one thing that I, I, I've come to realize is that if you're not getting replenished, like if, if you're not receiving, you know, the love back for the love that you give, mm. you find yourself empty. And in that time is, you know, in those states of emptiness is where you, you know, really, you know, where I found myself, you know, facing, you know, the incredible demons of depression yeah. again. And, you know, as a result, you know, made some, you know, made some pretty shitty life, life decisions. You know, I, you know, I saw the, you know, the devastation and the crash that, you know, that came with, you know, my marriage dissolving and the pain that it caused, mm. you know, my ex-wife and, and the pain that it caused my kids as a result of the life that I was, you know, that I was living. And, you know, while I, while I, I'm certainly in a, in a really, you know, good place today, I, and I don't, I don't have regrets about, you know, sort of where I found myself because, I've learned so much and I'm also a much happier person, mm. but there's, there's got to be a better way to do things. Yeah, definitely. Now I'm, I'm a true you know, rather believer. than, you know, sort of rather than, rather than blowing everything up and, yeah. and just, you know, sort of discombobulate around you, there are better ways to deal with your own unhappiness. And, mm. and I think unfortunately when we come from pathways of trauma, we, we often absolutely, we just blow everything up around us. And, you know, because, in, in many in many aspects, well, it's easier to reject than get rejected, right? Exactly right. You know, because the pain hurts. The aman- the abandonment. You know, the fear of losing my kids. The fear of, you know, was was the greatest fear that that I faced. And so, and ultimately, I created that. You know, in one aspect of you know going through you know that period of of divorce and and everything that I basically just you know I spent you know six months of my life you know just subjecting myself to incredible amounts of drug, you know, drugs and, you know, as a coping mechanism and just, yeah. you know, sort of, you know, pretending that everything was okay. But, you know, I realized I had a, a bit of a syndrome, you know, what, what I coined, you know, the Robin Williams syndrome where I was like the life of the party, yep. but then everyone would go home and I'd be dying inside. Definitely. And I think that's why, you know, when I really crashed and burned is that nobody saw it coming because everyone was like, you know, because I didn't reach out. I, I, all the things that I was giving advice around, around talking to people, about asking for help, around reaching out, I wasn't able to do myself because I was, I felt afraid of of all the people that you know I would let down in a way. For but sure. In doing so, in my own fear, I let everyone down anyway. Yeah, I completely understand where you're coming from that with that, and and. I've been through that cycle myself multiple times, as as you're well aware. I'm a true believer, and and I'd love to get your sort of take on this. I'm a true believer in that all our young people need to be afforded the opportunity to learn the po- the beautiful, positive aspects of our law and culture, and that is our strongest way to being well into the future. What's your thoughts on that? Hundred percent. That law and culture. It, you know, it's it's interesting because you know when I when I really crashed and burned, and you know I was exploring a whole lot of different options around, you know, sort of asking, you know, you know, I had to, you know, the first thing I had to go through work cover, and I had to go, you know, to see psychologists that were completely ill-experienced to do with, you know, to deal with what I'd lived through in my life. I remember sitting in the room, you know, sort of with with this, you know, with a young woman who was, you know, sort of a newly graduated psychologist who was going to you know, who, 
I asked her, I said, how, how do you think you're ever going to help me? Like, you know, have you experienced death? Have you experienced suicide? Have you seen people, you know, hanging in mango trees? Have you, you know, have you held your friend as they, you know, sort of bleed the death? Have, I asked all these yeah. and I was like, well, how do you expect to be able to even give me any support? You know, and, and unfortunately I was assessed as being aggressive because I was just asking the question of how, how you, how you expect to be able to give me support when, you don't understand the life that I've lived in any capacity. And, but, you know, like I reached around to so many different things and, you know, it was amazing how many people wanted to make my trauma about my indigeneity when my indigeneity, my culture and my law was the, the one thing that was actually positive and stable in yeah, me. And it's, I think you're, you're a hundred percent right that I look at, you know, sort of the dysfunction that, you know, that, that young people are facing across the, across communities around Australia. And, and one of the problems is, is that, you know, the policies of, of this country in the past have, have fractured our ability to take our young, our young people through law and culture yeah. or, you know, have, have removed our ability to, to govern our society with, you know, with law and culture. And as a result, you know, we have kids that are com- they have this identity of their Aboriginality, um, but they don't have any concept of what it is, what it is, and how to allow it to grow. What it is to be, them they, yeah, what it is to be Aboriginal, and the responsibility that comes with carrying law and culture, mm. because you know that was that was the biggest thing that you know I I came to realize you know sort of under the guidance of you know my grandfather my grandfather's brothers and you know other respective elders is that with the knowledge that was being imparted to me came incredible responsibility yeah well and um an incredible privilege to be able to carry you know those stories that and teachings and wisdoms and you know understanding you know, what obligations I had back to, you know, my community, what obligations I had back to my family, but what obligations I have to society as well when you carry, when you carry that. Absolutely. And, you know, we're both been through sort of similar passage where it wasn't until our, you know, early, early, late teens, early adulthood, where we've had the opportunity to sort of reconnect at that deeper level with, with who we are as our actual peoples for me, Gamilare, and for you, Kuku Yalanji. And it seems that for both of us, that's been one of the most protective things for getting us back on track and and make really making the difference between both of us being able to have being privileged positions and able to have professional you know careers now rather than be in jail to be honest yeah absolutely there's no question about it is that you know without without culture without you know the things that come with culture, so the music you know my music, my artwork. I, you know, my music and my art is my healing, you know, and, but it's also been an incredible p- platform for me to be able to, you know, to see the world and to travel the world and, you know, perform in some of the most incredible places and, you know, have my, have my artwork on, you know, the walls of, you know, sort of, you know, well-regarded and respected institutions that, you know, that my, my culture and the law that, you know, sort of my old people gave me is the thing that, I need to be able to use as much as possible when I do find myself falling down. I mean, you're registered with Sotheby's, aren't you? Yeah, I am. You know, so no, that's no, it's, that's it's, no it's, little feat. That's, that's a massive achievement as an artist to be recognized yeah, I mean, at that level. Yeah. And you know, I'm privileged, you know, like the two pieces of artwork that I created for Bang- Barangaroo down in Sydney, are, you know, like yeah, two of the largest individual pieces of Aboriginal artwork in the world, you know, one's 14 meters and the other one's 13.6 <laughs> meters long that they're incredibly you know these are pieces of artwork that are stories that were you know sort of taught to me by my grandfather and 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 old people and now are on the walls of these you know buildings that will who knows how long they'll live for Mm. you know my artwork is you know it's you know even you know moving up to you know the east kimberley at the beginning of this year and you know sort of my artwork continues to be collected and bought from people around the world and and it's you know it is my way of keeping healthy that to paint and it's also to me i reflect back on it now and i recognize it after you know sort of the continued the rises the falls the rises the falls i realize that you know when i'm painting it's actually a symbol of happiness and so i know that i'm in a really good space and when i'm not painting it's you know it's often a reflection that 
you know, something inside me is not quite right. And so, you know, now I've got enough, you know, now I'm, I've become conscious enough of, of that, you know, that when, when I'm in a really happy place, I'm drawn to constantly paint, you know, and since I've been up here in the East Kimberley, like, you know, I've been consistently painting, you know, that, you know, I might, you know, once I finish a painting, I might stop for, you know, a week or two because you fatigue, you know, one thing I, I've, you know, I've found with, you know, sort of the focus and I guess the amount of intent that I put into my artwork is that I do, I fatigue, you know, I'm, I'm also working with, you know, with the, um, Miron Gadron Corporation, you know, in the native title body and, you know, then coming home and painting for four hours every day. So I'm conscious of, you know, sort of, you know, fatiguing myself, but my artwork is truly a symbol of happiness. And so when I'm painting, I know I'm happy. And if I go for large periods of time where I'm not painting, I, I stop and check with myself. So I was like, what's going on? Where's my imbalance? And what do I need to do to get back on track? And so I think, you know, one of the, you know, one of the parts of, you know, the resilience that, you know, people like yourself and, and, and me, we carry is that we have, we've gotten foresight from our own trauma to, you know, to now go, well, what makes us happy? What is happiness? And how do we, you know, if we find ourselves, you know, sort of, you know, treading down a path of, of, you know, of, you know, sort of, I guess the cyclones of trauma, we, we can, we can stop, we can realign ourselves and we also have good people, you know, now that we also know who are the right people to talk to, you know, like well, I certainly know, you know, brother, that I would pick up the phone to someone like yourself, you know, as, as, a, as a brother and just say, you know, just give me a, you know, a, a headspace check, you know, to where I'm at. Um, and I think that's the, that's the important thing. And I, I, I really think that's a really important thing for, for us as Aboriginal men is who, who are the people that we can turn to and ask for help or just have a yarn with that really, you know, that is, you know, because the dysfunctions of our society have seen, you know, so many of our men only open up or talk when, when alcohol or drugs are involved. And we know that that's not a place where we should be exposing our own traumas because yeah. often when we open, you know, alcohol is a gateway, you know, for trauma to be exposed, but then we don't have the capacity to put a lid on that trauma. Yeah, and sure. so it all yeah, comes sure. flooding out and the, the overwhelm of grief and trauma becomes you know catastrophic and i I guess that that gets to that you know to a point of you you mentioned resilience and you know sometimes people think that when we we appear to be these very resilient uh beings men that all of a sudden they think we're we're invincible that things shouldn't get to us shouldn't bring us down but we're not we're still breakable you know I, I often explain resilience to people as nothing more than a rubber band and that rubber band can come in many different sizes but still can be stretched far enough to break no matter how thick it is so it's important that people do recognize that things will still get to you that you still do need to look out for your own well-being so you can be the best for others despite how resilient others may be perceiving that you actually are like you were saying you know you've got to take time to actually consider how how much of my energy am i putting into work and then coming home and painting like if you just do that constantly you you end up burning out and i think you probably more than anybody else know what burnout can lead to um you've had some pretty incredible episodes of of burnout <laughs> and work work fatigue You're like tell yeah. us tell us about you know one of those like i i've i've seen you when when this has really got to you and i mean you know one there was a time where i just where you know i it all got to me at the you know at the height of you know when i was ceo and advisor to you know to twiggy around generation one and i led the federal government all the way to the adoption of of the of the vtech policy and you know i found myself you know on level 32 of liverpool street in sydney and I was completely disconnected from all the things that give me strength and happiness. And there were a couple of things that happened in the pathway of work and, you know, that saw me crash and burn. And, you know, everyone around, I wanted to quit my job and everyone around me was like, why, why are you so unhappy? You've got a good job. You earn, you earn a shitload of money. But money didn't make me happy. And money wasn't, you know, important to me. I mean, money is important because we needed to survive, but, you know, sort of, I, I give money away as fast as I earn it. And, you know, I found myself in, you know, where I wasn't, I just, 
I felt underappreciated, you know, and, you know, it was probably a lot of my own trauma that was, you know, and the lens that I placed over it, but I wasn't coming home to, you know, a wife that made me happy. I, I didn't feel, you know, appreciated in a way. And, you know, I, you know, crashed and burn. I remember, you know, sort of just almost throwing the towel in and I walked into Sydney airport, you know, I had my passport in my hand. I looked at the flight schedule and, you know, and I, I, I looked at the board and I was like, fuck this, I'm just going. And I, I, I didn't tell anyone. In fact, I told my ex-wife, I was like, that, you know, I was going away for work and I called work and told them I was going away with family. And I walked into the Sydney airport and I looked on and the first flight that came up on the board was Santiago. And so I booked a ticket to Santiago and then I booked it from Santiago to Lima. And then when I arrived in Lima, I booked a ticket. I walked, you know, out of the airport and up to where the private, you know, sort of the hangars are. And I found, you know, sort of this, you know, sort of little Peruvian, you know, pilot who I'm sure was, you know, half cut on, on Peruvian jungle juice. And, and he flew me <laughs> to a Ketos and I, I find myself in the middle of, you know, sort of the gateway of the Amazon and I jump on this little tuk-tuk and, you know, travel six hours up the Amazon. I chuck my laptop overboard. <laughs> I chuck my mobile phone overboard. I chuck my clothes overboard. The only thing I had with me was a didgeridoo and my flute and my, and my passport and, and some cash. And, and I didn't tell anyone that I was gone. And, you know, I, I find myself up with the ugly people who I'd visited, you know, probably six years prior. But, you know, the, the Amazon with the amount of water that flows through that, that place, the landscape changes pretty quickly. And so I get dropped off, you know, from this little tuk-tuk, you know, and, you know, by, by a little, you know, sort of at, like little Amazonian, t- you know, tour guide who, who thinks that I'm in the right place. You know, and here's me six foot, you know, six foot one and a hundred kilos with a didgeridoo. And I started, I just walked into the jungle and I was walking for about three hours before I came across Yagua people. And, you know, I had the best two weeks of my life in terms of there was no English. There was no, there was, I didn't speak Spanish. They didn't speak English. They didn't speak, you know, I didn't speak their, you know, their, you know, their first nation language. And they certainly didn't speak mine. So we drew pictures in the sand and, but I had this incredibly, you know, beautiful experience and it allowed me to completely remove myself from, you know, the sadness and, you know, it was an escape, you know, at the end of the day, you know, what I did was no different to masking, you know, my trauma and pain with, with drugs. It was an escape. I took off from the world. I don't really know what I thought was going to happen, but, you know, I arrived back into, into, into civilization, you know, and in that time, absolute chaos had ensured in my family and, you know, nobody knew, you know, my ex-wife had contacted my work and my work had said, no, nah, he's away with family. And she, they were like, well, no, he said he was going away with me. Nobody knew where I was. I was listed as a missing person. You know, I was, you know, sort of detained coming back through customs. I, you know, because obviously, you know, I'd been in South America. There was, was some credit right. card records showing where <laughs> whereabouts you'd kind yeah. of drifted. Yeah, there was some. Yeah, so, I mean... It's yeah, but once I got to Lima, nobody knew where I was because I'd paid cash to get from Lima to Iquitos, and so I guess you know, it's you know, but it it caused absolute chaos because then you know I had to confront it when I came back home yeah. when the ship was still all there. But I seen you and, within a couple of weeks before that happened, and I seen you like afterwards, and you seemed so much better. Yeah, so I, you know, I mean, sometimes these things have to happen. Sometimes we have to have a reset. And that was that was a major reset. <laughs> I don't think we all have to go that far out of our way to reset at times. But I think it is important that we recognise that sometimes things will become overwhelming, and it's okay to hit the reset button. What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I think it is. You know, but I, I think people like people like me, we sometimes push things to the absolute extreme, and we take things too far, and. As a result, you know, sort of we cause a whole lot of chaos around us. But it was honestly one of the best resets for me. It was it was wonderful. And so I um you know, and it's a trip that I'll remember forever. And it's a trip other people in my family will remember forever because it kind of, you know, put everyone in a spin. But you're hundred percent right. Like I needed I needed that time. Yeah. And and it really did show that, you know, money's not the most important thing in the world and sometimes we need to be honest about that sometimes we need to recognize that there's far more important things to our well-being than too much bungu that you know what to do with like family like culture like being on country 
and being on somebody else's country at some times. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, being on country to me is one of the most, you know, most important things that, that I have, you know, and even, you know, sort of the decision to come back up here and live up here was in- incredibly important for me. Yeah. So to explain to us what being on country means to you. I'll, to me, being on country is is everything, you know. I reflect back on, you know, sort of rebuilding my own my own life in terms of the path that, you know, that journey that I first went on when I left, you know, the prison system of, of you know, of New South Wales and went back to, you know, my own country for the first time. But, you know, back in, in February, I made the decision to come up, you know, to, you know, to live on, on Miron country up here and, you know, doing, you know, there was a, there was a purpose to, you know, me making that decision is that I knew that Sydney was not a good environment for me. I knew that the city was not a good environment, but I know that I thrive when I have culture around me. And so, you know, I made the decision to come up, um, you know, to the East Kimberley and it's, you know, it's been one of the most healing parts of, you know, sort of my own personal journey in life because, you know, I took myself out of the city and came to an environment that was, you know, incredibly, you know, it's incredibly rich in terms of country and landscape. And it gives me the ability to, you know, at any point I can, you know, I work on country today, I I live on country and, and that's when I'm thriving, you know, and it's, you know, it influences my, my artwork, it influences everything. And we're, you know, you are Cookie Yellenji and, and I've got really strong connections with Cookie Yellenji through both yourself and also uncle that, uh, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough to get mentored through and, and is your actual uh, uncle um, being Mooks, and, and yep. also my wife being born up in that area. What's Kukuyalanji mean to you? The rainforest, like that's our mother, that's our that's our boss, you know. And it's it is hard, you know. It's hard when I find myself on the East Kimberley, like pretty much as far away from, you know, on the on the absolute opposite side of the country, um, and especially with the border, to, you know. It, exchanges it hasn't allowed me to go home because going home to country was you know something that i i always did to help build my you know sort of build my own strength and my own you know sort of connection and and i think one of the challenges that we find ourselves in in this day and age where you know where you know the covid restrictions have you know put incredible you know restrictions on us is that you know just as an as an aboriginal man who who's incredibly connected to country and how important that rainforest and that landscape is to me but I'm simply not allowed to go home at the moment. Yeah, I've got the same. And I've got the same situation. I'm, you know, Gamilaroi, and most of my country lays in what is now known as New South Wales, and I can't even skip over the bridge at Gundawindi to go over on the country. Yeah. So I mean, you know, the challenge that you know we face, and you know, today with the current climate of restrictions, I mean, it it is. It's. It's hard. You know, I came up here with the understanding that I'd still be able to travel back over east, you know, on a monthly basis. And, you know, after three months, the borders changed and, you know, I haven't been able to get home to see, you know, my kids. I haven't been able to get home to, to see my family. You know, like you talk of Mooks, you know, I haven't been able to see him, you know. And, and that's the thing is that he's one of the most valuable people to me in terms of, you know, he was part of the journey of my healing. You know, he saw me as a broken young 18-year-old come back up home for the first time you know, was part of that, you know, sort of with my grandfather, you know, part of the reason why I was able to rebuild my life and, and, and find stability again. And so when you get when you get stuck away from the people who, who are the, you know, sort of biggest influences and teachers to you, it's it's really it's really difficult. And just going back to, to Mooks, you know, like not only is, is he family, he, he's an incredibly gifted healer as well. What, what does traditional healing actually, what place do you think traditional healing should play within our Australian society system, health systems these days? Knowing, because both of us know how incredibly positive and healing it actually can be, but many Australians are completely oblivious. Well, I think, you know, that like, like so many things is that, you know, people put these, you know, sort of fairy tales around or, you know, and make things a bit too esoteric or, you know, around our, you know, what our practices of traditionally he- traditional healing have always been. You know, we know how significant and valuable and important to it. You know, when you talk of someone like Mooks, like he's been part of every, you know, he was part of that whole, you know, sort of the journey of me going through law and understanding law and culture and understanding, you know, the relationship that, you know, my old grandfather, you know, had with Mabun and, and teaching about, 
you know, sort of traditional healing and, you know, both myself and, and Mooks have worked incredibly um, closely together around, you know, the practice of traditional healing and sharing that with, you know, sort of not just with, you know, community members, but with people from all around the world, you know, at times of, have, have come to see both myself and, and Harold for different aspects of healing and, you know, cultural healing is so critical, I think, for Aboriginal people when, you know, when they're exposed to it and understand it and learn a pathway of how, how important it is that it is one of the, you know, one of the most important and most significant parts of healing. I think that we should be doing more to to acknowledge the wisdom that comes with it, you know, from a, you know, I, I remember when I had, like I had my own healing clinic up in, on the Sunshine Coast at one point, and I had to close it down because the medical guild wouldn't recognize our our traditional yeah, healing. Yeah, you can't get a, insurance <laughs> as, as a practice, and so I couldn't get insurance. So I was I wasn't protected, and that was not that was unsafe. And that's the situation we're still seeing today. Um, you know, there's some places in Australia, so South Australia is doing a much better uh, role at at incorporating traditional healing into the mainstream sort of health setting but there's many areas particularly here in queensland where we know we've got some really powerful knowledgeable healers still in the state but our system completely ignores the value of that form of healing not just for us as aboriginal peoples but i think it also ignores that it can be a value to all australians and that people would actually be quite embracing of that. You know, we embrace so many other alternative therapies as such, but yet we don't allow our First Nations peoples to practice our ways of healing. And, you know, it's, it's Indigenous Business Month. And, 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 you know, they're always telling us that we should be a part of the economic system and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. But yet whenever we have these little avenues that could actually allow us opportunities to be a part of a system but maintain our connections to culture, they tend to hammer it down pretty quick. So we see it in the healing space. We see it in the traditional food space. What's your opinion on that? Um, I, I just think that, that there's... You know, things like, you know, while, while things like Reconciliation Week and NAIDOC Week, they're incredibly critical to, you know, the advancements of our own system and our society, you know, that we have today. I just think that, you know, we have to celebrate our culture on a daily basis and we have to acknowledge that, you know, the richness of our culture is not something that should just be exploited over a two-week period, but it actually should be invested to invested into over the whole 365 days of the year, over the whole you know, sort of, you know, sort of, there should be longevity in, in seeing that this is not just something, oh, right, we, we've got reconciliation week coming up. We're going to get as many Aboriginal speakers. We're going to get as many Aboriginal businesses to flood our, you know, flood our business. And then, you know, the week is over, you know, there's no continued investment unless businesses are making incredible conscious decisions. Like I look at the relationship that I've had with Suncorp, you know, Suncorp Bank in terms of the production of the artwork that I did for Suncorp. Um, and then this continued conversation that I've had with Suncorp around, in terms of the way that business has operated, I could I can I could speak nothing but praise in terms of their ability to constantly communicate with me every time they wanted to use my artwork, every time they wanted to use a, a, you know a fraction of my artwork, there was incredible cultural you know consideration, and I I can only put that down to the fact that you know that the work that um, Mundanara Bales has done with. You know, with you know, with Blackheart and the leadership that she's shown in terms of, you know, sort of influencing and educating. You they're know, pretty. Business. They're pretty deadly. That whole uh, that whole family. Yeah, uh, it's an incredible family. You know, one that I've got such admiration and, and respect and love for. You know, across that whole family, and you know, but in terms of that education that they're providing, as not just like it's not just a you know this tokenistic cultural awareness train. Like this is it's about culture. It's embedding cultural framework into the way businesses operate. And, you know, obviously there's one business in terms of Suncorp that both myself and, and Mananara have shared, you know, continue to share working relationships with that individual business. But the way they engage me, I know for a fact has been influenced by the work that Mandanara does and, and, I, and, and Black Card, that whole Black Card system. And I think that, you know, if more businesses invested into, you know, sort of to really understanding like having a cultural integrity to the way they engage Aboriginal business, there would, you know, there would be further conversation because, you know, I've had experiences where, you know, businesses have, you know, bought my artwork, then published my artwork. And then I find myself looking at a photograph from the NAIDOC week the following year. Mm. And 
there's one of my paintings that's been, you know, sort of printed and blown up and spread across a wall and there's been no cultural engagement around, are we allowed to even do that? Yeah, not even a conversation. Not even a conversation. And then you find out. And then what, what happens is I find myself in a position where if I raise it, Am I being antagonistic? Am I being making someone feel culturally unsafe? Am I? You're an you angry know, like black. All of yeah. And so, you know, those things are, you know, where I realize that we need to have more, more significant, you know, sort of cultural engagement and real integrity around the, the way they engage Aboriginal business. Absolutely. And, you know, you know how we run our business here at, at, at Sober and it's all run off the positive principles that, that come from from my law, from my Diria Gamble, you know. And and I actually think if mainstream business allowed us to share our ways of knowing and being with them more, they'd actually see that our ways of doing business is just good business <laughs> because it's actually about beyond the self and per- actually about looking after others in place. Sense. Yeah. Exactly right. And it can you still know, be like profitable. It. Exactly right. And there's nothing wrong with being profitable. You know, like that's the thing is we should celebrate profitability in terms of, you know, our Aboriginal business, you know, because we deserve to prosper in this society. That, that doesn't mean we're entitled to prosper. Mm. It means that we deserve to prosper where, where we succeed. And we're far more and likely to, share, to spread the love around as well. 100%. You know, our families are pretty big, you know, and extended and, and we have to, you know, sort of, and that has to have a big reach. So one of the things that we're actually doing here at the moment, and, and you know, I don't usually give plugs to, to Sober on here, but I will in this instance because I'm talking to you and you are Cookie Yellenji, and what we're actually doing in this month is every carton of our lemon aspen pilsner that we sell, we're donating um, 10% of that to uh, Half Cut Org, and then yep. Half Cut Org will use that money to buy back Cookie Yellenji country so that it can be gifted back. So we're, we're so stoked to be able to partner with them and be a part of such a, a wonderful initiative. It, it did end up with me having to shave half my head off uh, a few weeks yeah, ago. I saw that. Yeah, I, it was but, pretty yeah. rank. <laughs> but you can't fix ugly anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but as I said, it's, it's a place that, that I'm very passionate about because of the connections that I have with both people and the place. And so I feel very privileged that we have the opportunity in our very little way to be able to to assist caring for that country. And I think that's a place yeah. that, again, business can learn from us, that we, as businesses, we have a responsibility to actually care for this country and all country now that it's being shared by so many different peoples. And, and I think the yeah, more of us I that agree. actually took on that responsibility, the far better world we'd, we'd be living in. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, everything that you guys are striving, and and I know your business, you know, fairly intimately, you know, as a result of, you know, sort of our relationship and the, the family's relationship, and and you know, sort of the relationship we share with, you know, with with my with my country, and I, you know, I, I wish that, you know, sort of other people would realize that no matter how big or how small the contribution it is, is it makes a significant difference. I mean, what you guys are, are doing with Half Cut and and what they're doing in terms of, you know, sort of getting the lands back, you know, is so impactful, you know, that, you know, every little bit, you know, makes a significant difference on, on us protecting, you know, our, our, our significant country, you know, and, you know, you know, we just saw the celebration of that native title of, of Eastern Yellenji country coming, you know, yeah, coming well, back to people. Yeah. And it, it just was, you know, it's an incredible opportunity for us to continue you know, what has always happened in terms of the maintaining and the protecting of our lands. And that allows for the ongoing healing that that land can, can offer to so, to so many people, not just the traditional custodians, but I'm sure many would agree that when they visit those places, they feel healed. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's no question about it. But that, you know, that mudda, that rainforest is, is, a, is a magic place of, of incredible healing. But, you know, all country has its, you know, when, when country is protected, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at the, you know, the landscape of, you know, the East Kimberley and, you know, I'm privileged. I, I walk out my front door and I see these incredible, you know, sort of red rocks. I'm surrounded by it. And, you know, it's, it's just healing for me to see country every day. And, you know, in reflection to, you know, where I found myself on, you know, level 32 of, you know, stuck in a concrete jungle, like, this to me, I, I now understand is is what I need for the best life that you know that I can live my best life. Jezza, if there's one piece of advice that you'd want to leave with our listeners, particularly any of our our young fellas that are listening to this, what would it be? 
that there are there there are good people out there, and that you know finding finding and identifying who those good people are in your life, and there's no there's no prescription to the good people in your life. It's about individually identifying who are good good people for your own you know your own prosperity and your own health. Find those people and then be brave enough to ask for help because there's there's been times in my life where I wasn't brave enough to ask for help. I was shame about it. And the one thing that I've come to understand is when, when I became brave enough to ask for help, there were good people out there that wanted to help me. And so like never feel like it's weak to speak, you know, because it is, it's actually empowering to speak. Beautifully put. And thank you very much. And for all our listeners again, Jezza was kind enough to uh, do the artwork for our Aniseed Myrtle Stout. So any of you who have bought that or have seen that and, and wondered uh, where that artwork came from, uh, that's a story that came from Jezza. So we very much appreciate that. I, I love and appreciate you, brother, and thank you very much for sharing with us and, and giving up your time. I know it's a, it was a very early start for you, so it was only 6 a.m. when we kicked this conversation off where you are this morning. So thank you for getting up early. I know you're not yeah, an early true. morning person. I am now. I am now. <laughs> All right, brother. My arm with Jezza reminds me of something I learnt from Gindra, frogs in my Gamilaray language, about the importance of living in a healthy environment, one that is healthy for both our mind and our spirit. Gindra are great indicators of the wellness of the environment in which they live. When Gindra are plentiful in an area, you know that the land and the water are healthy. When there is pollutants in the area, Gindra are the first to suffer as they absorb everything directly through their skin. Where I live at the Gold Coast, Gindra used to be everywhere. When I was a kid, it was easy to find them. Every night you would hear the call. They were easy to find sitting on or around ponds and creeks, clinging from tanks or pipes. When I moved my family to the valley, we would often see Gindra. This is a story of one Gindra that often visited us. One day my young sons came running into the house saying, Daddy, Daddy! Come see the frog, he's huge. It had been a long time since I had seen a large green tree frog, so I was excited and followed the kids straight out. Sitting in an empty pot next to our barbecue area was a huge, fat, shiny green tree frog, Gindra. He looked so healthy, we decided to help him out of that pot and put him in a tree in our yard. Gindra was calm. Gindra was calm while I gently picked him up. He just sat still in my hand while my boys and I admired him. We placed him gently in a nearby tree. The next day, Gindra was back in the pot. For about two weeks each day, we would fetch him out of that place and put him in a tree. And the next day, he was back in the pot. Over this period, I noticed Gindra was starting to change. He was getting skinnier. He wasn't as shiny and he didn't seem as alert. My boys and I were starting to really worry about him. We decided that he must want to be in the pot. So we decided to leave him there with some water for him to drink and swim. At that same time as Gindra was getting unwell, a few things were happening in our lives. At the same time as Gindra was getting unwell, a few things were happening in our lives. We were renovating and the environment was disarray. The stress of renovating a house while trying to live and work there is extremely high. I was also having difficulties at my workplace and I wasn't coping well. I was drinking heavily and I had very limited patience. I also had little enthusiasm for exercise. So not only was our surrounding environment not the best, but the environment that I was creating in my mind and body that my spirit had to live in was fairly rotten as well. People were noticing and commenting on me, not looking my best and being constantly cynical. Gindra was reflecting the ill health that was going on around us. Looking back on it, I think Gindra was coming back every day to help me realise how sick I was and that I was passing that on to others. Coincidentally, the same day Gindra disappeared for a good, I decided I wouldn't drink in front of the kids anymore and I put plans in place to leave my toxic workplace. The message we can take from Jeremy's journey is similar. He was living in an environment that was not healthy for him but he felt people were pressuring him to remain despite it becoming more toxic. This led to Jeremy becoming unwell, mentally, physically and spiritually, to feeling like he was disconnected from his culture but he kept returning to that same environment every day. He finally passed the point at which his resilience would not let him get through another day in that toxic environment, and he fled. Exactly like Gindra, we are completely reliant on the environment around us. We attempt to control the environment around us, but often much of our environment is out of our control. What we do have control over is to stay or go. 
Sometimes we need to decide to leave the environment for our own well-being. Sometimes we make the decision to stay and battle on hoping for better. Like that Gindra, Jeremy absorbed all the toxicity around him. He was both letting the agendas and expectations of others impact negatively on him and projecting his own negative coping on others he was connected to. This had a flow-on effect to his personal life, his family and home and workplace. Things quickly fell apart. Workplaces are environments that we exist in for good periods of our lives. When our workplace doesn't meet our expectations or don't match our values, we start to perceive and experience the workplace as polluted and toxic. Often we force ourselves to stay in these environments despite knowing they are no good for us. We absorb this toxicity and allow it to make us unwell. Being uncomfortable with our own disease, we project this towards others, further adding to the toxicity of the environment. For me personally, I stayed in a toxic workplace environment as long as I could withstand it, but it made me sick. I had to learn and accept that it was okay to let go of that space, that I was no lesser for doing so, but could easily become lesser by denying myself the right to do so. Jeremy had the opportunity to learn multiple times throughout his life that he is well when he is connected to nature and disconnected from the chaos of city life. He learnt this at age 18 when returning home to country. He learnt this again during his escape to the Amazon. But for a time, he had forgotten to apply these lessons to his everyday life. It is awesome to hear Jeremy yarn about the healing he has felt again since moving back remote. And I think there is a lot we can learn from his journey in this space. Thank you, my brother. And as for that big Gindra, we never saw him again. Since then, we have worked hard to create a healthier environment at home and we've been fortunate to see several other Gindra getting around. Gabaninda. Yeah, yeah, what are we?